The following audio is from a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer entitled, Pray Like Jesus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are spending six weeks studying the Lord's Prayer to learn from Jesus how to communicate and encounter God in a greater way in our prayer lives. That prayer is meant to be a life-altering, soul-centering, and thoroughly enjoyable experience. It's one of the most, most enjoyable experiences of our life. But sadly, many of us rarely have that type of experience in prayer. Our prayer life is often dry, intermittent, repetitious, and can feel rather pointless. Like our prayers are just spoken out into the great abyss of nothingness. No one hears it. Nothing happens. But we keep doing it, hoping that maybe someday something might stick. Something might happen. After last week, someone told me, Pastor, thank you for preaching on this topic because I've grown up my whole life in church, but no one has ever taught me how to pray. I just kind of learned from listening to other people. Many of us have been told that we need to pray. When we become a Christian and we're in church, we know even we have a desire to pray. We have a desire to connect to God and we feel inwardly like God wants to communicate to us. But when we actually try to pray, we just kind of wing it. There's even some people who think that that's the only real and authentic way to pray. Just to say whatever is on your heart and at the moment, that real, real prayer, for it to be real and authentic and genuine, it has to be spontaneous. But when the disciples take their frustrations with prayer to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us how to pray, Jesus doesn't just assume they already have it figured out. Oh, you just need to do it more. That's the problem. Just do it a lot more and you'll get it figured out. That just might compound the problem and cement poor habits into place. Nor does Jesus say, just pray whatever comes to mind. Just however you feel. Just pray whatever. Whatever emotional moment, whatever the thing stirs in you, just pray that. No, no. Jesus says this. The Lord, Lord teaches to pray. That's the question from the disciples. And Jesus responds like this. Pray then like this. This shows us, though, we naturally feel a desire to meet with God and talk with God through prayer, we must still be taught how to pray. And Jesus teaches us that there are ways to pray that do not reach God's ear, that do not connect with Him, and are not beneficial to us. So it's a real possibility that if your prayer life is stagnant, if your prayer life is lacking any vitality or any power to it, you might be doing it wrong. Now listen, 
You might say to me, Justin, I've been praying for 20 years. Well, you can be praying for 20 years wrong, right? There's right ways to change a tire and wrong ways to change a tire. Just because you're changing a tire doesn't mean you're doing it right, right? And now listen, don't be offended by that. If that, that thought offends you, then you're already in, in a problem. You're already in a, in a bad situation because you're never gonna be open to learning how to have a real and vibrant prayer life with God if you think you've already got it figured out. I hope it doesn't offend you. Many of us, we make all kinds of mistakes in prayer because we've never been adequately taught how to pray. And so we're spending six weeks in letting Jesus teach us how to pray. And Jesus showed us a couple of those ways that prayer goes wrong last week. And this week he's going to show us that real prayer, here it is, prayer that is living and active and gets results, begins with good theology that produces genuine heartfelt worship. Okay, here it is. Real prayer begins with good theology and ends or moves to heartfelt worship. Now, those words might scare you a little bit, especially the word theology. Theology has gotten a bad rap. Theology is the study of God, uh, and that might that word might conjure up images of old white guys with long beards surrounded by books trying to figure God out and put him into some kind of box. Guys that are just arguing with one another about issues that don't seem important to real life. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Yeah. Think about it. It's a little trippy once you do. But that is a caricature. It's not the essence of theology. Theology is about studying God's word in order to understand who he is and what he's done. And as we saw last week, you can't really communicate to a God if you don't know who he is or what he's like or what he expects of you. So the first thing Jesus teaches us to pray, if you open up your Bible, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 Jesus says this, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. So the first thing Jesus teaches us to say when we approach God in prayer is our Father in heaven. Now what is this? This is no less than a theological statement about who God is. It's a statement about God. Now, I don't want you to sleep on this. Our Father, there is so much. Listen, you, most of you, some of you guys, if you've been around here long, you're like, Justin only has, what, eight words to preach on today. That doesn't make it any easier. Every one of these sentences is pregnant with, with quadruplets. Okay, we could get down into just the word R. I could preach a whole sermon just on the word R. Okay, and I dare me, dare me to do it right now, right? Father the same way, right? In heaven the same way. So we're just gonna, we're not gonna be able to, to wring out all of the goodness here, but let me, let me try. Jesus starts this prayer with a statement about God. Our Father is actually a shocking way to start a prayer. First, though many of us are comfortable praying to God as our Father, and have grown up hearing that kind of familial language applied personally to God. When Jesus said this, it was brand new. 
It was shocking and offensive, so much so that this is one of the things that got him killed. The Jewish leaders of the day were both offended and appalled that he spoke this way. And if you study the Old Testament, the revelation of God that Jesus would have had and that everybody else would have had up until this moment, the word father is only used of God 14 times in the Old Testament. And of all those occurrences, they're all in reference to the nation of Israel. God is the father of the nation, but no individual dared call God their father personally. That was unheard of. But all of that changed when God came to earth in the form of Jesus. When Jesus grows up and matures and starts his ministry, he begins by calling God Father. And in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus addresses God as Father in every single one of his prayers but one. And that's the one in the garden when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus doesn't address God in the corporate sense of the word Father. But the word he chooses is a Hebrew word, Abba. Many of us have heard this before, which is more like saying, Daddy, or Papa, or dearest Father. It was an intimate word, but still a reverent word. This was because, now why did Jesus do this? This was because Jesus had always been with the Father. He always knew the Father. The Father is always the Father. The Son, Jesus, is always the Son. The Spirit is always the Spirit. And they exist together inside the Trinity. So they always were in relationship to one another. And this is why in John 3.16, that, that it says that Jesus was God's only son. Right? He's the only begotten son of God. Now, it's common for, for us to hear people say things like, we are all God's children. Well, that statement is really confusing. In one sense, it's true, but another, it's not. When we think back to the beginning of our country, we speak of the men who wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution as our what? Founding fathers. And yet we also know that they were not our fathers in the familial sense, right? Maybe a couple of you can trace your ancestry back, but most of us, right? They're not our fathers. The same is true of God. Though every human being gets their existence from him, and in one, he is the creator of all, God is not everyone's Abba. In fact, the scripture teaches us that because of Adam's rebellion from God in the beginning of the human story, all humans after him, Adam and Eve, and all humans after them were cursed. They would be separated both relationally at birth, that their rebellion would be in their DNA, that they would be born, in another author's terms, they would be born spiritually dead. This is how the Apostle Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I think I put the scripture up there. Let me read it. And you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following, look, the course of this world, just the natural way things go. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once, this isn't just like good people and bad people, everyone once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out what? The desires of our body, just doing what we want to do, and the mind, and we're, here's the term, and we're by nature, that means by birth, by DNA, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The Apostle Paul here is saying that we come into earth, we come into this world dead in sin, following the course of this world as opposed to heaven, following Satan, the prince of the power of the air, as opposed to God, living out our passions and our flesh, doing exactly what we want to do with very little regard for God's ways. And we are by nature, that means by birth, we're children of wrath. Now, we can all just collectively go, whoa, my mama never told me this, right? I've been told I'm special. I'm a unique snowflake, right? Since day one, I've never been told you're actually a child of wrath, son. Let's talk about that. Now, what does that mean to be a child of wrath? That means I am a child that is born into sin. None of us, I use this illustration a lot, but it needs to be said a lot. We, no one in this room teaches your children how to sin. They come out doing it. They know how to whack you with a rattle. They know how to say no, right? They know how to throw a temper tantrum when you don't give them the sucker in Walmart right? They know how to do it. They're, they're born. Now listen, here's what, sin is in our DNA. Sin is in our veins. And because of sin, God, who is only good and only loving and only just and only righteous and only holy, he has to judge that sin. He has to deem it wrong and push it away from him. And that is wrath. That is being under the judgment of God is being under his condemnation. And so we're born children of wrath. That means we're born under the wrath of God that Adam provoked because of his disobedience. We are not born into the natural family of God. We cannot call God Abba at birth. We are Adam's children by birth, not God's children. So, can you see how shocking Jesus' opening prayer is? Because, because of Jesus' identity, like Jesus is God's one and only son, always has been from the get-go. So when Jesus walks into the house, he says, hey, daddy, what's up? But Jesus is telling people, his disciples, who were born children of wrath, to pray, our father. Don't say my father, Je Jesus is dad. I, I need to address Jesus' dad. Is he home? All right? No, he says, come and say, our father. So understanding Jesus' identity, it's no wonder that Jesus calls him daddy. But what's shocking is that he taught his disciples and us to emulate him, to say, our father. Now, this should lead us to ask a question. This logically flows. How can children of wrath pray to God as their father without invoking his wrath. Wouldn't that be a little bit like the mouse praying to the cat 
Well, the answer is, and it's not a simple answer. The answer is something needs to happen to change a person from a child of wrath into a son or daughter of God. And the question is, what needs to happen? Well, this is how the Apostle John says it in his gospel, John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, who all, for to everyone who receives Jesus, puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who believed in his name, he gave right to become children of God who were born, look, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here John tells us that in order to call God our Father, we must be born again, born of the will of God. Now, how does that happen? John says by a person receiving Jesus, by a person believing in Jesus' name, not by growing up in church, not by going to church, not by reading your Bible, not by being a good person. A person gets born again by believing in Jesus' name. Now, Paul says something similar in Galatians 4 and 5. Let me read this to you. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So the father sent the son, born of woman, born under the law, just like we are, to redeem, that means buy back, those who were under the law so that we might receive, look, adoption as sons. See, Paul gives us a new word. Born again, that kind of language is kind of, you know, it might be a little more difficult for us to understand. It's kind of out of this world type of language. But Paul says something in Galatians 4 and 5 that's helpful for us in understanding what John was talking about. Paul says, we were children of wrath in need of adoption in need of someone outside of ourself rescuing us, wanting us, paying a price to get us, bring us into the family, legally change our names, say you are now in the family, you are now in the fold, you are now my son, you are now my daughter. And Paul says, this is what Jesus did for us. Now I want you to hear this. In order for us to pray like Jesus, we must first be adopted by God. And that happens when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our Redeemer, as the one who lived the perfect life for us in our place. And it was treated like a child of wrath on the cross for us in our place. Because of what Christ has done, we can be adopted by God because Jesus was treated like a child of wrath. Now, many of us get that. But here is the experiential part. Here's the part that takes what, what I just described for you in a, in a nutshell. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And here's what takes the good news out of the purely intellectual 
and down into our hearts. I'm going to keep reading in Galatians. I'm going to continue in in verse 6. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son. Here's the third member of the Trinity. So God sent the son. The son came, lived the life that we should live but don't, died the death that we deserve for us in our place. Then the son was resurrected to the right hand of God and the father and the son sends the spirit. Where does he send the spirit? Into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Daddy. See, we've had this name change. We've had this adoption. Something's taking place where we're no longer a family on the outside, a child of wrath. Now we've brought into the family of God by the work of God himself. And we can say now, Daddy, to God. So you are no longer a slave to sin, but a son. And if a son or a daughter, then an heir through God. Because of the gospel, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, God has sent the spirit into our hearts that teaches us and enables us to now pray like Jesus. We can now say, Daddy. We can now say, Abba, Father. Now, there is so much theology packed in that one little phrase, our Father. You see what God has done to enable you. This is not just a flippant thing. We just, hey, Dad, what's up? No, no, do you see what's behind it? Do you see what God's done to enable you to be able to do that? And if that doesn't thrill you to the core, if that doesn't melt your heart like a stick of butter in the hot sun, then you forgotten who God is. You've forgotten what he's done for you. That's why I think Jesus goes on and he says, our father in heaven. I don't have time to spend on adequate amount of time on this, but God is not like your father on earth. God is in heaven. That doesn't mean That's not like a place. That means he's spirit. He's everywhere all the time. He's different from us. He's not like there and not here. He's everywhere all at the same time. He's omnipresent. What does it mean that he's in heaven? It means he's holy. He's good. He's righteous. He's powerful. He's everywhere all at the same time. He is not abusive. He's not aloof. He doesn't have faults like our earthly fathers. So Jesus starts off here by teaching us that good theology is vital to a good prayer life. Like our prayer life is limited by our amount of knowledge and our accuracy of our knowledge of God. If you think God is a fairy tale in the sky, your prayer life is not going to be vital and living and active. If you think God is a cosmic judge who can't stand you and he's just looking to punish you all the time, who wants to have an intimate prayer life with that guy? God is not like your father. He's not aloof and distant and yet do whatever you want, I'll love you no matter what. Nor is he disciplinarian, overbearing, you know, he's not a monster in the sky. He's not like that. Our father in heaven 
We have this intimacy, and yet he's not like us. He's better. He's holy. He's good. We must know who God is and what he's done for us. So we pray, our Father in heaven. Then after this address, the first thing Jesus has to pray is, hallowed be your name. So Jesus is saying, know God, know who he is and what he's done for you, and see that he's everything he's done to enable you to be adopted into the family, and then hallow his name. Now, that's a word you use a lot, right? What's up, bro? Nothing, I'm just hallowing. What you hallowing? You know, hallowing. We don't know what hallowing means, right? What does it mean? Some people say it means to treat it as holy. I think that's true. I think that's right. To hallow something means to treat it as sacred. Let me bring it down to us a little better. To hallow something means to treat something as the meaning of life. To worship it. Head, heart, hands, all of me. To base your life upon it. To see something as your reason for existence. It's your purpose. It's your chief love. It's your greatest desire in life. And here Jesus is teaching us that prayer is not meant to be a head, just, just a heady exercise. The Lord's Prayer is not meant to be simply read aloud or memorized or recited as if the words alone are some kind of magic incantation. That would be to treat the Lord's Prayer the way the pagans treated prayer from our text last week. Here, for prayer to be real, we must do more than repeat some words. We must engage our soul. So we say our prayer has to be both intelligent, we have to understand what we're saying and understand who we're praying to, but it also has to be genuine from our heart for it to be real. We must actively engage our mind and actively engage our heart. Now, how you engage the heart in prayer? Jesus spent a lot of time in his ministry talking about the heart. In a day and age where most people didn't, Philosophers wanted to talk about the mind and the will, but Jesus spent time talking about the heart. He said the heart is the control center of the human person. It controls your behavior. It controls your feelings. It controls your desires. That people naturally do what's in their heart. You speak what's in your heart. Out of your heart, flows your life. Now here's the principle. To hallow something is to put something on the throne of your heart. And whatever it is that you are hallowing begins to control and determine the direction and the shape of the rest of your life. What you hallow determines what you love. It determines what you think about. It determines what you imagine. It determines your behavior. And Jesus is directing our, uh, us to this principle, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That when we are hallowing God's name, God 
His person, his character, his nature is on the throne of our heart. That means God is filling our thoughts. God is filling our heart with new desires and new loves, that God is directing our steps, that God is motivating our behavior, and we don't want to do anything that would bring dishonor to God's name. So the, do you see how radical this is that Jesus is teaching people? First of all, our Father, you get invited into the family because of your adoption. Now pray like this, hallowed be your name. God, you are the most important thing to me. Now, many of us, we have a pitiful experience in prayer. I know it. You tell me all the time. You tell me how difficult it is. I think this might be the key or one of the keys. Much of our prayer life, maybe all of our prayer life, goes wrong because we're attempting to speak to God with something else sitting on the throne of our heart. We are hallowing something other than God. Now, first off, how do you know what you are hallowing? Well, what do you think about most of the time? When you got five minutes to think about nothing, what does your mind go to? What do you love more than anything else? The little bit of discretionary income that you have, where does the majority of that go? What do you have to have for your life to be worth living? See, why does our prayers go wrong? Why don't we have a vital prayer life? Because we go to God like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be my career. Hallowed be my children. Oh God, hallowed be my children. Oh God, hallowed be my sex life. Hallowed be my fulfillment. Hallowed be my money. Hallowed be my freedom. Hallowed be my name and my reputation that we go to God and we're begging him to give us a false God that we, are, we have on the throne of our heart. Some of us dare say, I will believe in you if you give me what's on the throne of my heart. Now listen, praying like that will actually make your life worse. You will leave prayer more self-centered, more anxious, more upset, more confused. You have this clear set. You know exactly what your child needs. And you go to God and you're saying, God, if you don't know, my child hasn't been to church in a few weeks. And if you don't know, they're dating that person. And if you don't know, and you're informing them of all the information. That's from last week, right? And God's going, mm, okay, okay. And then you say, and here's my plan for their life. God, he needs to go to school. God, he needs a good job. God, he needs it. And you just now, first off, I informed God of all the information that he didn't, he didn't possess as God. And now I'm telling him exactly the right path for his life. 
So God, if you could do that, please, I'd much appreciate it. Thanks for the talk. Man, I feel like this is just a monologue. Something else is on the control center of your heart and you're praying to God to give you that thing. But when God is the object of my worship, when he is what I'm hallowing, I'm not using God to get the things I really want. How do I know this? Because when I'm hallowing God's name, God can say no to some of my requests. And that's okay, I trust him. But when I'm hallowing something else, what I'm actually doing is I'm going to God, asking him to give me my real God. I'm going to God to ask for things that will make me happy when God is trying to teach us in prayer that we are to go to him for our happiness, him as our happiness. Hallowed be your name, not mine. And we should note, when you look at the Lord's Prayer, it has six petitions. There's six things that Jesus teaches us to pray. The first three are all about God. And the last are about us. This is meant to teach us the, the proper structure of our prayer life. When we are, we are to, we're to pray God-directed prayers, God-centered prayers first. He says this, Jesus says this, your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, and your will be done. Then and only then should we pray, give us our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, and lead us not in temptation. Now listen, if you're a stubborn person like me, if you're a person that has your will, you know the best way, you know how things need to work out, you've studied, you figured it out, you know this is what needs to happen, do you realize how subversive this way of praying is? That we're going to the God of the universe and we're saying, everything that's in my heart, everything that I really, really, really want, subvert that for your will, for your glory, for your kingdom, for your name. Only after I do that are my prayers probably being heard. Before that, I'm just going to Santa Claus. Right? Sitting on his lap. What do you want for Christmas, little boy? Well, let me tell you. I've worked on this list. Bam, 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 bam. That is not going to produce a fruitful relationship and a fruitful prayer life. We have to go to the God of the universe and surrender first. Surrender our will, surrender our name, surrender our kingdom. That's what Jesus is teaching us. Why? Because God is the center of the universe, not us. God is the essence of life and goodness in and of himself. And his name represents his character, so his name is the only name that's always good, always right, always perfect. His kingdom is the perfect world that we all want and that which human beings can never produce and can never make happen. His will is the only will that can actually bring about that kingdom. 
And so we have to have a bit of humility when we enter our prayer life and say, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I need. I don't even know what I most desire. But when I'm thinking clearly, I know what I want most is you. What I want most is your will. What I want most is your kingdom. So would you please recenter me? Would you please refocus me? Would you humble me? Would you direct my prayers to be God-centered before they're man-centered? Now, it means we do not go to God primarily to get things from him. We go to God in prayer to meet him, to experience him, to hallow his name and enjoy him. And yes, we do ask things from him. It's not wrong to ask things from him, but only after marveling at our own adoption as sons and daughters, the work he did for himself, and centering ourselves upon his name and determining, listen, determining to do nothing that would bring dishonor to his name. That's a centering prayer. God, I am tempted to worship my career, but I want to hallow your name in this moment. Recenter me, refocus me. And if, and if you can really reach in and do some diagnostic and you know what's the most important thing in your life, you realize how important prayer is because that your heart resets like every morning, maybe every hour. God, I'm be about your name, right? An hour later. You're back to chasing the the accolades of people. You're back to pursuing the career that you're finding your identity in. Prayer is about meeting God and experiencing God. Now listen, most of us think eternal life, like I became a Christian because I wanted eternal life. And what we think of that, we think of that as like a place that we go when we die. But that's not the only way Jesus spoke of it. In John 17, verse 3, this is what Jesus says. Quote, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that we know God, and we know him through Christ. What Jesus is saying is eternal life begins now. It begins when we're born again. It begins when we're adopted into the family of God, that I begin to know God as my father and I begin to lean into that. Who am I in light of him? Oh, I'm a son of God. I've been adopted into the family. I can now communicate with God. And what happens in eternity is all of my sin, all of my shame, all of my weaknesses is removed, and now I can do that, what I'm already doing now, knowing God, walking with him, communing with him, enjoying him, now I can do that free of sin, free of obstructions. But no one is going to know God in eternity if they're not knowing him now. They haven't begun this process now. Now, as I close, I'm doing good. This introduction to prayer that Jesus gives us, it's meant to dethrone every other God in our life. Think about it. 
when you're sober-minded, what has your career done for you? Has it died for you? Has it promised you eternal life with God? Can your career forgive you when you fail? Can it redeem you when you've screwed up? No, it can't. Why are you worshiping? Why are you looking to it for your meaning and your significance and your purpose? In John 17, Jesus prays for anyone who believes in him, and he says this. He prays that we believers would know that the Father sent the Son and loved us even as he loved Jesus. Now, that statement, to think of us as children of wrath, and God goes to the orphanage, and he said, and God says, I love them the same way I love Jesus. Now, in one sense, Jesus would not be a hard son to love, right? Jesus, clean your room. Already did it, Dad. Right? Oh, okay. Right? Jesus, honor your mom. Always do, right? Like, he never sinned. He never made a mistake, right? Jesus is an easy kid to love. But God, through the gospel, loves us, you, your porn-addicted mind, your career-worshiping self, your image idolatry, you who know you love money more than you love God. He looks down and he loves you the way that he loves Jesus, the perfect son. He says this. He goes on. Jesus goes on and says this. I've made known to them your name. Jesus came to show us what God's like. God's like Jesus. And I will continue to make your name known in heaven. He's going to do it through the Spirit. Look, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. God himself, Trinity, he is love. Father, Son, Spirit, relationship, love is at the center of the universe. And that love that holds everything together, that Trinitarian love, Jesus said, I am going to make that available to be in you if you put your trust in the Father, if you put your trust in the Son. Jesus is the only God who has done that for you. He's the only God who can fill you with the love of God. He's the only God who will forgive you when you sin against him and others. And he's the only God who has given up everything so that you could know God and you could experience his love and his presence in prayer. This is why we pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, there's this tendency in the church to equate recognition or realization with repentance. But it's not the same thing. 
you might be sitting here and you might be realize, you know, you're, you're kind of assessing your own heart and you realize that something other than God is more important to me. And first off, if you can't, if you're like, who is he talking about? Who would worship anything other than God? You should ask your husband or wife what your God is because you're blind to it yourself. We all do this. This is why the first commandment was have no other gods before me, right? Because that's what we all do. So if you're looking at, if you're looking inward and you're assessing your own heart and you realize something other than God is more important to you, listen, praise God for that. I think maybe that's the spirit working right now. That's a good realization. But you won't change. It won't matter. That realization won't do anything unless you actually repent. And so many people, they, they get things pointed out to them. Oh yeah, I realize that my career is an idol. Oh yeah, I realize that my kids are an idol. Back to tomorrow, same thing I did yesterday. That's not repentance. That won't produce any change in your life. That won't produce any new fruit. Thank God you had a realization and a recognition, but now you need to respond to that by repenting, by changing direction. If your God is money and you don't give, you don't tithe to the church, you say you're a believer, but you don't tithe, that means 10% of everything that God gives you because it's all his anyways and we, he lets us keep 90 of it. 10% we give back for his kingdom and his work and his mission in the world. If you're not doing that, realizing that money's an idol doesn't do anything for you. You must repent. And for you, that means write a check, give money. That's what it means. That's the only way to actually repent is to change your behavior. Same thing with whatever it is. You spend 80 hours a week on your career. Oh yeah, it is an idol to me. Okay. You just, next week's schedule looks exactly the same. That's not repentance. Your life will not be changed through realization. It'll be changed through repentance. The spirit provokes you and you change your direction. That's what God asks for all of us. That repentance is more than just emotion. It's more than just a feeling, repentance requires action. You must actively turn from that thing and turn towards Jesus. So, can we take a moment right now? Will we allow God, will we say, God, your kingdom, right? Your will, your name right now? Can we take a moment and let the Spirit of God Reveal things to our heart? Have you been praying to God to give you your false gods? What would repentance look like for you? What would it look like this week? Listen, some of it is just like, some of it is just a realization, right? The beginning is a realization. What am I doing? Right? What have I been doing with my life? Look what God's done for me. How am I not living out of this? How am I not enjoying what he's done for me? Right? But the other part then is, what's going to look different? Am I going to set my alarm and get up and meet with God in the morning? Instead of going through my to-do list and answering emails and doing all this stuff? Okay, that would be a change. That would be 
some repentance, some fruit in keeping with your repentance. Right? What's God asking you to do this morning? I'm going to take a moment right now. And I'm going to ask that he would speak to your heart. That he would both remind you of your sonship or daughtership, but he would also bully any false god that's sitting on the throne of your heart. He would bully them off of the throne. And he would make way for the only real true God that you can find satisfaction in. Father, would you do that now? Would you do that now? Confess our foolishness. We confess the ways that we've forsaken you, our first love for other things, created things that you've given us to enjoy, but we've forsaken the creator and we went to the created things. We know our career is a good gift that you've given us, but it's not meant to be worshipped. Our kids are good gifts, but they're not meant to be worshipped. Money is a good gift, but not meant to be worshipped. Would you save us now? Save us from our foolishness. We redirect our gaze to you and your son. Fill our hearts with the love of God that existed before the, any of creation existed. Fill our hearts with that kind of love. Show us the changes that you want us to make tomorrow, today. What does it look like for us to repent of this? Give us direction here. And Father God, I'm so thankful that we don't come to you in our own strength and in our own righteousness. We come to you, the broken body and the blood of your Son. No matter where we're at, personally right now, we've been adopted into the family. You call us to be reminded of that through the Lord's Supper. To be reminded that you came for us, that you sent Jesus to adopt us into the family. So I pray that we would search our heart and we would repent, but we would also eat and worship and joy knowing that it's not my repentance, it's not my behavior that gives me the family name. It's the work of Christ on my behalf. Jesus, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.